Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. At our interview today with James M. Fenelon, author of the new book, Angels Against the Sun, the story of the 11th Airborne Division, sometimes called the Forgotten Paratroopers of World War II, the men who slugged it out with the Japanese in the dense Philippine jungles, facing the combined enemies of fanatical Japanese, monsoons, swamps, mud, privation, and disease, to name a few, to free the Philippines and the capital of Manila, where they fought from house to house in Manila to liberate that captive city and its people. James M. Fenelon is a paratrooper turned historian, and here he gives us a grunt's eye view of one of the toughest paratroop divisions in history, the 11th Airborne. Angels Against the Sun has received many great reviews, and I want to share one by author James M. Scott, author of Black Snow and Rampage. And that review reads, General Douglas MacArthur, driven from the Philippines at the start of World War II, famously vowed to return. And James M. Fenelon has captured that epic slugfest in magnificent detail. In his extraordinary new book, Angels Against the Sun, Fenelon drops readers into the heart of the fight in a story filled with bonsai charges, jungle warfare, and the block-by-block battle to retake Manila, the former Pearl of the Orient. His laser focus on the story of the 11th Airborne Division illuminates the commanders and the grunts who battled not only a fanatical enemy, but also the sweltering tropical landscape, insects, and disease. Angels Against the Sun is both a testament to the fortitude of these daring soldiers as well as a hell of a great read. Again, that was James M. Scott. I've read the book, and it's absolutely fantastic. It just drops you right in and doesn't let you go. It's that good. James M. Fenelon, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity and, and the compliment. The first question right out of the box, what inspired you to write Angels Against the Sun? Yeah, it's uh, Angels Against the Sun about the 11th Airborne is a continuation, I guess, if you would, of my mission to breathe life and to shine a light on some of the forgotten airborne units of World War II. My first book was about the 17th Airborne Division, which was another unit um, in World War II that fought 
in the European theater, um, most famously dropping across the Rhine River. And the 11th was another one of those units, you know, like like dozens of other American divisions. They were formed specifically to fight in the war and then uh, were disbanded shortly thereafter. Now, the 11th was a little bit different in that they occupied Japan for a number of years. But, you know, their story has kind of fallen off the, the national radar. And I wanted to kind of rectify and give them give them some overdue attention, so to speak. I'm so glad you are. Most of the stories I've seen uh, regarding the Pacific are Marines and their island-to-island campaign toward Japan, trying to set up airstrips and fighting dug-in Japanese. The Philippines were crucial to our effort. We needed them badly. And these guys are an Army division. And even, even stranger, they're a paratroop division, but they're rarely getting used as paratroopers. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, a good a good point of comparison familiar with most history fans are, you know, is the Band of Brothers mm-hmm. series and, of course, based on the, the Stephen Ambrose book. But the 11th Airborne was a, a unit under the same kind of model, if you will, right? That was the 101st Airborne who, who fielded the Band of Brothers. The 11th Airborne Division was modeled in the exact same pattern as that, meaning that they were intending to drop their troops into combat, either via parachute or engineless glider. And the division was set up with one parachute regiment. In the case of the 11th, that was the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And then two sister regiments that were made up of glider infantrymen. And those guys were initially intended to uh, be dropped into combat in those gliders. Now, what, what made the 11th kind of interesting right off the bat was that General Swing, who was the commander of the division, kind of a kind of an old school guy if you will in that he he was he was fascinated by the capabilities of vertical envelopment of what airborne warfare offered a commander in terms of, of another way to deploy troops but he also viewed it very much from a traditional standpoint if you will meaning that to him dropping troops was simply a unique commute a unique way to get them into combat and so he viewed them as less elite shock troops as some of the other uh, airborne generals did, particularly General Gavin and some of the guys that came up when the units were being formed at the battalion size and then expanding into regiment, et cetera. And Swing, to, to give himself more flexibility in combat, started running his own division-level jump schools to qualify as many of those glider troopers as parachutists as possible, which really gave him uh, a unique way to deploy his men. It gave him a lot more flexibility than other units. And at the high point of that training, he had about 72% of the enlisted men in the division were jump qualified, and about 82% of his officer corps were jump qualified as well. And, And as we start leaning into some of the campaigns, we'll see how Swing was able to leverage that capability to your point, not not during any mass airdrops that we might think of when we think of World War II missions such as Normandy or into Holland, but into, you know, platoon and company size airdrops into the jungles of, of Leyte. What surprised you most while you were researching this story? Uh, you know, it's funny. Early on, I, I guess I had approached it with, with some, I guess it's fair to say, assumptions, meaning that I had just kind of brought my own perspective on the war in Europe versus the war in the Pacific. And when I talked to a couple of World War II, you know, veterans of the 11th Airborne or Red Diaries, you know, I had assumed that they would have preferred to have been sent to Europe. 
to fight the war. Mm -hmm. And I was I was surprised when talking to some of these guys that, you know, they, they reminded me that most of them had enlisted as a direct response to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Right. And so when they learned that they were actually being sent to the Pacific, that was that was something that they had actually enlisted for specifically to go fight the Japanese. And so it wasn't a surprise to them. It wasn't a disappointment. They didn't have that kind of luxury that we have now about the war in Europe being fought, you know, in conditions that were more, uh, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for there is. But, you know, you, you, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, you know, the Pacific, as you mentioned in the intro, right, lots of disease, lots of uh, bugs, lots of horrible weather, heat, muddy conditions. A lot of that, you know, of course, Europe had its own uniqueness with the Battle of the Bulge and things like that. But, you know, you had buildings you could shelter in. You had Paris that you could go to if you were lucky for a weekend pass, things like that. None of that existed in the Pacific. And so I guess that's a long-winded way of answering your question. But I was I was reminded why these guys had enlisted and, and, and that they had actually preferred to go fight the Japanese due to their response to the attack on Pearl Harbor. I did a couple of stories on the Philippines and was, I guess, surprised to find out that the largest American forces cemetery outside of the United States is in the Philippines. And it's just a brutal reminder of how many of our men we lost in the Pacific campaign and how brutal it was. And I'm not taking anything away from the soldiers who fought in Europe. It was a tough, tough fight. But the conditions were no near as deadly in Europe than they were in places like the Philippines and the islands uh, leading up to Saipan and Okinawa and eventually Japan. I'm really looking forward to your sharing this story, which is which is almost a day-by-day -day story. It's so well-written. I can really tell with this story that you were a paratrooper because you write this from a first-person point of view, almost as if you were there. And you didn't miss a thing with these guys. You, When I read this, it was like being in the foxholes with these guys. And I'd like you to begin the story with the 11th year in time when they were mustered and finally sent to, I believe it was New Guinea, was their first stop. I was wondering if you could start us there as they're dropped in New Guinea and what they were facing. Sure, and I appreciate it. You know, I did I did work hard. I wanted to provide a, uh, you know, a personal experience level. And so I really dove deep into the letters and the diaries to, to supplement all of the official documentation to really breathe life into what the experience was like on those islands and of course to your point the first island that the 11th airborne landed on was was new guinea they arrived in may of 1944 and it was at that point that the the, the battle for new guinea had, had was largely over there was still some resistance on the far side of the island but the japanese at that point on new guinea more or less had been buttoned up and the 11th did not engage in any combat on New Guinea, but what they did do that really set them up for their next, their first campaign in the Philippines was they spent a lot of time on New Guinea taking advantage of that location to conduct a series of very realistic training exercises. So they had the benefit of going to several jungle schools that were staffed by veteran Australian soldiers. A couple of the 11th Airborne guys were sent over to the the famous Alamo Scouts School. And at the same time, General Swing, who was the commander, started putting his men through a number of field exercises um, that were conducted in the jungles of New Guinea that were live fire exercises. 
And it was a combined arms exercise, if you will, of all of the division's capabilities. So he would form these small combat teams that had elements of engineers, infantry, medics, more, you know, heavy mortars, and the division's artillery, and send them into the jungle on these live fire exercises. And we know that they were pretty tough and pretty realistic because, unfortunately, there were a number of casualties from the friendly fire in these training exercises. Mm-hmm. But it really gave the division uh, an opportunity to kind of hone their skills before they were thrust up into the mountains of Leyte. At first mention of Leyte, all I usually read about or hear of is the naval battle in Leyte Gulf. And this is really the first authoritative account I've heard of the fighting on the island of Leyte, which makes this super fascinating. Yeah, it was an interesting, it was an interesting battle for a number of reasons. Of course, you know, MacArthur landed in October of 1944. This was his famous resolution to the promise, I shall return, that he made to the Philippine people in 1942 when he had to, he had to evacuate from Corregidor. He landed with a number of divisions on the northeast uh, shoulder, if you will, of Leyte. The 11th Airborne Division initially sat out the invasion. Uh, MacArthur had concerns about the size of the 11th Airborne and therefore opted not to include them on the initial invasion. And what was the purpose the of size, that? I guess, Can I ask? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, So one of the differences of an airborne division, besides it being trained in a specific way to go into combat, was its size. So a traditional infantry division had anywhere between 14 and 15,000 men. The 11th Airborne Division had 8,500 men. And where the difference came from largely was uh, the number of support troops and logistical units that were in the division, right? The initial vision of a airborne division was that it would go into combat as shock troops, meaning they would be dropped in front of an advancing army, they would seize their objectives, whether those be bridges or road intersections or airfields maybe, and then as soon as the advancing army caught up, the airborne troops would be relieved, moved to the rear, reconstituted, rearmed, and then dropped in again, right? And so this idea was, well, what Airborne divisions are limited in their size because we have to airlift them, so they're automatically going to be smaller because we don't have enough aircraft. But they're also going to be smaller because they don't need all of this extra logistical stuff because they're not going to be in the field that long. Well, of course, when you get to World War II, field conditions, combat conditions kind of change that up, and airborne units, sure enough, were in the field a lot longer than originally anticipated. The impact of that on the 11th when they were in the in, in the Pacific and MacArthur was looking at his roster of divisions to deploy in the invasion was he and his ground commander, Walter Kruger, were concerned that the size of the division was a limitation and that they'd be able to get them supplies to the beach, but then the division itself wouldn't be able to sustain its own campaign by getting those supplies up into the frontline troops. And so it was really only after a month into the campaign on Leyte where everything was kind of going at a very grinding pace. The the weather had turned against MacArthur's campaign, so it had been raining for over 30 days, turning all of the roads on the island into, you know, muddy messes. The the few airfields that were there had turned into quagmires, and so he had to base all of his land-based aircraft out of one small airfield on the north of the island. And then, of course, the Japanese. The Japanese were landing reinforcements on the west side of the island by the thousands. 
there was, you know, higher than expected casualties. And so those were the kind of the conditions under which the 11th landed on Leyte. They landed um, on November 18th in an administrative capacity, meaning that where they landed, the beach had already been secured. They weren't necessarily expecting to be committed into combat right away. But less than 24 hours after they landed, MacArthur tapped them to start pushing up into the mountains. And I'll take just a quick second to kind of give your listeners the lay of the land yes. of what was going on on the, on the island. So please do. those divisions that had already landed were now kind of figuring out how to, to navigate this central mountain range. So Leyte, if you can imagine, is longer than it is wide. It's kind of cut that lengthwise by this very rugged central mountain range. And by rugged, I mean extremely high peaks up to 3,000 feet. Um, plunging ravines, no no roads through those mountains, so no way to get even a jeep up into those mountains. Everything had to be man-packed. And so MacArthur kind of and, and, and Walter Kruger were executing this pincer attack where they were moving divisions around the mountains to the north and then around to the base of the mountains to the south with this idea that they would then join on the far side of the island and start attacking towards each other to cut off the Japanese ability to reinforce the, the west coast. Mm-hmm. The 11th was tasked with moving up into the mountains itself on foot to cut off the Japanese um, routes that were leading, letting them come in over onto the East Coast. And so those were kind of the conditions under which the 11th was initially deployed. They started moving up into the mountains. And again, as I mentioned, you know, rain had been ravishing the island the 11th literally landed in, in, on the tail end of a monsoon. So, so everything is covered in mud, you know, mud's up to their ankles as they're trudging up into the mountains. Digging foxholes is, you know, extremely challenging. They're collapsing. They're filled with, you know, six inches of mud at the bottom of them. So everybody's just soaking wet as they start pushing their way up into the mountains. And now on their way up into the mountains is where we really start to see geography and terrain negating the american advantages mm-hmm. so the mountains are covered in in clouds which means that you can't really get air support up there um, nobody really has any accurate maps of those mountains so the maps that the 11th airborne had were literally hand drawn by combat engineers and by the uh, way listeners, by the way listeners uh author fenelon has taken the time to give you the exact uh copies of those maps uh reprinted in his book he's got a lot of great maps and he actually shows uh those battlefield maps that were given to these guys and uh as we find out a lot of the a lot of the settlements etc etc are thousands of yards off uh the terrain isn't always right huge cliffs are not shown so the maps were of little value to these guys yeah no it's a great it's a great point and i included those in the book because i really wanted readers to kind of get a sense of the limitations that these guys had because of course you know as a soldier the most important piece of information you can have is your own location knowing where you are is an important component to calling in air support calling in artillery calling in reinforcements all of these things are dependent on you knowing where you are and so these guys immediately just again before we even get to them engaging with the japanese had a number of challenges that, that needed to be overcome. The other, the 11th Airborne also had a lot of assets because of the fact that they were a paratroop division. For instance, gliders, uh, for instance, their, their specific training that were never put to use. 
And I wonder if that's maybe one more reason MacArthur didn't put them to work early, that he needed them for reserve or maybe or maybe special uh, warfare where he could make better use of all their assets. I might be wrong there, but that seems like maybe one reason. Well, certainly there was a lot of speculation amongst the men. You know, they spent several months on New Guinea before being uh, committed to combat. That was kind of starting to be a morale issue. They had started referring to themselves as service troops instead of <laughs> combat troops. Yep. You know, and they had speculated that maybe MacArthur was saving them for the final invasion into Japan. But, you know, what's interesting is we start to kind of see General Swing's flexible approach to how he wanted to use his division's airborne capability up in the mountains of Leyte, right? So they're they're pushing their way up, and as I mentioned, all the supplies had to be man-packed up into the mountains. And that just, at, at some level, isn't sustainable, right? right. Carrying, you know, 81-millimeter 80, mortar shells, yep. um, the mortars themselves. They were tossing them, some guns. of the mortar shells as they went. It was just too exhausting, right? That's right, exactly. And so when they got to a certain point in the in the mountains, they found a small plateau. They cleared it so that one of the division's light observation aircraft and the, the artillery units in the 11th Airborne had these small single-engine uh, aircraft. One, one trooper described it as like a lawnmower with wings, very small two-seater plane. And it would putter over this, over this um, clearing and they started dropping some food in and some ammunition and things like that. Well, Swing pretty soon decided that he was going to expand that forward base up in the mountains, if you will, into a larger drop zone. So he took a platoon of his combat engineers, and one man at a time would get in these aircraft, and there was about seven of them at this time, so seven aircraft, one guy per aircraft. They would fly over, and the guys would parachute out of this little Cessna-like observation plane. They had literally yeah. wrapped their static lines around the back seat of the aircraft. At 1,000 feet, so, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty close <laughs> to 1,000 feet. And these guys were literally jumping into this little jungle trail. And once the engineers landed, they started using their picks and shovels and their demolition kits to expand the footprint of the drop zone. And this is then where that additional training that Swing implemented came into play, because then Swing one man at a time again parachuted in an entire company of his glider troops into that forward base to then set up a perimeter to free up the guys that are already there to keep pushing up into the mountains which is where they really started to engage the main elements of the japanese army that were coming across the island did swing and macarthur ever butt heads was 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 that talked about at all or not uh, interesting. Uh, no, Swing and MacArthur got along, as far as I can tell. Swing was always very professional in his descriptions of folks. He never really expressed a personal opinion. But yeah. in several letters home, several letters home, um, both during and after the war, he had nothing but admiration okay. for MacArthur. I think he appreciated the way MacArthur tried to avoid unnecessary casualties. All right. I think that was that was something that both Swing and MacArthur had in common. They wanted to avoid the kind of up-the-middle approach that other commanders seemed to, to, to use at the time, and they both kind of preferred the old motto of hit them where they ain't, I think was one of, one of MacArthur's yeah. quotes. And I think Swing was very much of that same mindset. Uh, from an operational perspective, they got along. Go into it a little bit in the book. You know, one of the things that I found 
kind of flabbergasting was his approach to the battle in Manila and how he was at some, you know, at one point in the battle, his staff was more concerned about planning the parade through the victory parade through Manila than they were on actually fighting the battle itself, which again, kind of shows, I think the dichotomy of MacArthur there. Yep. The value of the camera Hmm? wading into the surf, same stuff. (laughs) That's right. What advantages did the 11th airborne have that made them a valuable contribution to the battle? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to get across in the book was just the the improvisation and the flexibility with which General Swing wanted to or was able to fight with his division. And so I think, again, where you see, you know, their initial hesitation to commit the 11th was their size. But again, as soon as they get into battles like the in the Central Mountain Range on Leyte or even as they were pushing their way into Manila, the capital city, they were really able to advance quite rapidly using, you know, almost what we would call today light infantry tactics to really either push themselves up in the mountains, sustain their own campaign with their own ability to resupply, you know, through through uh, parachute operations, or just move quickly and bypass pockets of resistance on their initial, you know, push on Luzon up into the capital city. And so I think it was that unique combination of uh, the ability to aerial resupply and, and not use it from necessarily from a doctrine perspective, right? So again, it's it's using the, the, the small aircraft organic to the division, dropping in guys one at a time as necessary. They did do some larger operations. They did end up doing a regimental size drop on Luzon. And so they did take advantage of that at a wider scale, but it was also just Swing's comfort level with being able to move his units around you know, to, he, he was a big fan of keeping the Japanese on on their heels, and he really wanted to maintain a very aggressive momentum. And you can see this really in the Luzon campaign. And he became very comfortable with swapping out parts of units. So he would take a, a, a battalion from his glider infantry regiment and assign them to his parachute regiment. He would take a company from the parachute infantry and assign them to the glider units, you know, he was he was very adept at making sure that his units had what they needed to keep moving forward. And, and you know, it got to the point to where when you're reading some of these after action reports, it became almost dizzying to try to figure out who was attached where at any one time, because he was just constantly, you know, expanding and contracting the size of units based on that particular front element and then shifting things left or right in order to kind of go around the main line of Japanese resistance and then sweep sweep back around and deal with them after they'd been cut off. It was really very kind of, you know, very cool, frankly, to see how Swing did that and take advantage of, again, both his size and his willingness to kind of ignore doctrine to, to accomplish the mission. Take us down below the treetop level on Leyte. And how long did that battle take? And, and what was required of these guys to win it? Yeah, so, you know, once they were up in the mountains, it really became a, you know, a slugfest going toe-to-toe with the Japanese. So it really was, you know, they're on these narrow trails, on these very sharp ridgelines, thick jungle. You know, you're, you're running into Japanese patrols with your point elements. So the, the battles were usually very sharp, very short, you know, in, in many cases, because it's squad on squad or maybe platoon on platoon. Mm-hmm. And the 11th mission was really, 
again, pushing their way up into the mountains, occupying these high points to deny them to the Japanese. Um, at one point, the division point element, which was the 511th parachute Trent, had moved forward and the Japanese had moved in behind them to occupy the hilltop between them and the, the supply element. And so for a number of days, you know, the, the 511th Regiment was actually kind of cut off yes. from other elements of the division as the Japanese kind of occupied this hill. And it really became a, you know, a standoff up there. And finally, um, Swing started airdropping in um, artillery pieces. So they had these small 75-millimeter pack howitzers that were originally designed to be transported by mule, which meant that they could be broken down into component parts, they slung those underneath the C-47 and dropped four of them, one at a time, up into the mountains of Leyte. Legend has it that they're still up in the mountains because nobody was able to carry them back out. Uh-huh. Um, so I've, it's one of my, on my bucket list items to go hacking through the jungle looking for those artillery pieces. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, but again, so, you know, Swing was able to airdrop in that artillery, get those guys up in the mountains, the... Um, heavier firepower that they needed, which gave them an advantage over those Japanese forces that were up in the mountains. They weren't really getting any air support at that point because, again, the clouds were so thick and the mountains so steep that, um, you know, calling in air support wasn't really an option because they didn't really have any way to visibly guide those in. They took advantage of air support much more significantly on uh, their second campaign in Luzon. But as far as, you know, the under the canopy piece goes there, it was, you know, pretty much your textbook version of of brutal jungle fighting as much as you can, you know, imagine it. It was, again, in the mud, in those in those conditions. They went at one point five days without getting resupplied with food. So it was it was very much a battle of survival, just as much as it was against the elements and the Japanese. When did they know that they had won it, that they'd won the battle for Leyte? Oh, interesting. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so it took them a little bit over a month to, bef- you know, from the time they left on the East Coast and, and they came out on the beach on the West Coast. Okay. And so, you know, but again, that was the point element in what they had done during that time was had left a several Japanese units cut off on those hilltops. And mm-hmm. so as the first guys were kind of making their way onto the beach on the West Coast, some of those glider infantry units were coming up behind them mm. to deal with those pockets of Japanese that were still holding out um, in the jungle. And so all told, I would say it was probably, you know, a six to eight week campaign for the 11th to kind of from the time they started until the time they had kind of dealt with all of the, the pockets that they had overrun. And, you know, as, as you may know, the Japanese occupied parts of the, the Philippines up until the very last day of the war. Yes. And as a matter of fact, the last Japanese soldier surrendered in the Philippines in, in 1974. Yes. Yep. Amazing. You spent a lot of time uh, not only researching, but actually talking to veterans. And it's just such a rare opportunity now, as so many of them have passed away. What impressed you most, and can you name? Can you provide a couple of names of men you spoke with, and tell us about their recall and what they experienced and what they remember most? Yeah, you know, it was it was a, it was a privilege to get to speak to a number of those guys. Sadly, they're passing away. You know, every day time time is marching on. 
I, you know, I enjoyed really, I got to speak with uh, a couple of veterans, one of whom was Henry Muller, who was the division intelligence officer. Um, he was, he was really interesting to speak with. He had very good recall. Um, of course he had written a number of, of personal accounts from his experiences there. So he had mm-hmm. documented, um, you know, reference material available to him to, to reference as necessary for the conversation. And then, you know, one of the most valuable uh, components of doing the research was period letters or diaries. Right. And what I really found interesting about that was, you know, this idea that sometimes we embrace now around the nostalgia of, of brotherhood, right. Or this concept of that's almost sadly become cliche now about relying on the guy to the left of you or a guy to the right of you. Well, you know, in World War II in the Pacific Theater, that was not a cliche. That was the reality of how troopers survived a bonsai attack, right? You had to do your job, and, you, and while you were doing your job, you had to rely on the fact that the guy on your left or on your right was going to be doing his job. That's how you defended against human wave attacks that the Japanese were throwing at the perimeter. Mm. And, and I remember one of the letters written by a guy in 1944 back to his parents and I'm paraphrasing it, but it basically said, you know, if I have to be here, I can't imagine doing this without the guys that I'm with. And I would rather be nowhere else than, than with these, with these men. And it was a very poignant letter and very, you know, uh, you know, it was written in 1944 while they were still, still engaged in this combat. And so it was, it was kind of one of those gem moments, if you will, of finding, finding these sentiments so clearly articulated in the moment. Yeah, one of those pearls you find researching. Absolutely. Exactly. When, yeah. when in the process of interviewing veterans, what did you learn about their attitudes regarding the dropping of two atomic bombs to end the war? Yeah, so, you know, for that, I think we need to spend a few minutes talking about the context, of course, of the war and what was going on at the time. So, you know, in August, of 1945, the 11th Airborne was planning and preparing for what they thought was going to be the invasion of the Japanese home island. The Japanese propaganda had made it very clear that they were going to fight to the last man, woman, and child on the island. Um, The casualty estimates that the Allied planners were putting together for the invasion of the Japanese homeland were staggering. And, of course, behind the scenes, we now know through, you know, the historical record that the Japanese had organized millions of civilians into uh, militias. Those militias were not very well armed. They were armed, you know, with spears and and daggers and very rudimentary weaponry. And so, you know, the veterans that I spoke with and the the accounts that I found were all, all viewed the atomic bombs as a necessary evil in that. You know, they actually saved more lives than they took, which is hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around. But I think that's where, you know, looking at it from context is an important component. Mm -hmm. You know, some ideas were to form a blockade around the home islands. And and I think, you know, and these veterans kind of were of the opinion that all that really would have done was starved everybody to death on the island, which is not a very humane way to go either. And so. You know, at a minimum, the veterans viewed the dropping of the atomic bomb as saving their lives. But in a wider scope of things, they viewed it as saving lots of civilian, more civilian lives than it took in their in their opinion. 
We're going to take a break here for a sponsor message. When we get back, we're going to talk about the urban fighting in Manila, and then we'll end it with talking about the 11th being the first American troops to set foot on the island of Japan. And now we'll get back to our story and our interview with James M. Fenelon, author of the fantastic book, Angels Against the Sun. And first question I do want to ask you on that one, James, how did these guys get the nickname Angels? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. So the, you know, the, the 11th Airborne, when they were formed in 1943, the average age of the enlisted man in the, in the unit was 19 years old. And so, you know, you can imagine, um, you know, we were all teenagers at one point um, with questionable decision-making skills. <laughs> and so, you know, it was after the unit had finished their basic training. They did basic training in block, meaning the entire unit went through basic training together. They started getting their weekend passes. You know, these young men were out hitting the town. Um, many of them were away from home for the first time. They were certainly glad to be away from you know, the, the authoritarian environment of the army during the week. And so, you know, they, their rowdy behavior in many cases started to kind of show up on these weekend passes. You know, one guy uh, stole his, his commander's polo pony and, and tried to escape from, from post on horseback. Um, several other guys, you know, while they were in the field, snuck into a farmer's field and killed several of his pigs so that they could have ham and bacon with their rations. Um, you know, and then there was a number of, you know, alcohol related fights and incidents in town. And so it was on Monday mornings, one of the senior commanders in the 11th airborne used to ask his junior officers sarcastically, how many of our angels are still in jail this morning? Yep. And um, that kind of, you know, that, that, that question that he, that he asked every Monday kind of took off, and pretty soon Swing heard about it, and he started referring to his men as his angels, and that's kind of how the division got its nickname, and it kind of stuck. Yeah, and it wasn't, wasn't just the enlisted men. The officers were into it, too. I understand one of them uh, stole a refrigerator. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was one of my favorite stories. That was uh, when they were actually in the Pacific, and you can imagine how hard getting getting ice was. He actually uh, was driving his Jeep past a supply depot and saw this refrigerator sitting out there, and so uh, quickly jumped out and loaded it on the back of his Jeep and threw a tarp over it, and he figured the best way for him to keep it was to give it to General Swing as a gift. And then, of course, you know, he had then had access to the ice and everything that was, that was in it. But yeah, that, that's a funny story. <laughs> All right. We've won the battle on Leyte. How were these men uh, repositioned and what was the next fight? Yeah, so you hinted at it a little bit ago. Um, the next campaign was on the island of Luzon, which is where the capital city of Manila was, which was the main objective there. MacArthur really wanted to liberate the Manila. He had lived there before the war. It was the capital city of almost a million residents at the time. Uh, the Americans had hoped that the Japanese were going to declare Manila an open city and withdraw their forces hmm. from the city to avoid a massive urban battle. But unfortunately, the Japanese occupied and fortified Manila, yep. and it became the largest urban combat in the Pacific theater. And and you're also to your earlier point, you know, the before the Americans arrived um, in the city, you know, they had invaded Luzon. The Japanese started a series of atrocities against the Filipino people. Yep. 
started out as reprisals against guerrillas, but how the Japanese defined guerrillas quickly morphed into pretty much anybody who was Filipino was was a guerrilla. And so you had very horrible conditions in the city, you know, stories of beheading, uh, stories of hurting families into their homes and then setting the houses on fire. And so it was really uh, a horrible scene when the 11th, the 11th landed south of Manila. General Swing had advocated to drop the division in its entirety um, just outside the city, but they didn't have the aircraft to support a division size operation. So they ended up air dropping in um, a regiment and then um, amphibiously landing the rest of the unit. Those two units linked up south of the city and then started pushing their way north up into Manila. And it was then that they kind of ran into what was known as the the Genko Line, which is this Japanese line of defenses that was arrayed to the south of Manila City. Mm -hmm. And it was also here that as, as the angels started pushing their way into the city limits when they started discovering a lot of these atrocities firsthand. They started seeing the, um, you know, the results of the Japanese terror campaign against the Filipino people. And at one point, even one of the um, officers from the 11th Airborne Division marched his men past several of the, the Filipino corpses as a reminder to them, telling them, if you guys ever doubt why we're here fighting this war, I want you to remember this scene. And um, so it really was brutal. There was an estimated 100,000 civilians were killed yep. in the Battle of of Manila. Some of that was obviously due to, you know, both Japanese and American artillery, unfortunately. You know, the Japanese would occupy these buildings and, you know, some of these buildings would were, you know, beautiful and would rival anything that was in Washington, D.C. as far as, you know, the ornateness of these, these massive marble buildings. The Japanese would occupy them and the only way to get them out or to get them to stop fighting was unfortunately to bring the buildings down around them. Which yeah, meant, they, would, they would use civilians you know, as shields too. That's right. How long did it take to win that Battle of Manila? How costly was it? And where were they next sent? Yeah, so the Battle of Manila took about uh, six to eight weeks. Um, you know, and again, the Japanese were, were holding out on Luzon up until the very end of the war. Um, once the city itself had been secured, and again, that was around that same time period that, you know, I was mentioning earlier about MacArthur was trying to plan a parade at one point and you know nobody was willing to tell him that the streets were so covered with with rubble from the fighting that there was no way you were going to have a parade from there you know the the american divisions pivoted to continue to push across the island uh the 11th kind of almost did somewhat of a u-turn to come back and then went headed southeast to cut across um the island itself they conducted a, a mop-up pushing across the island they also did a very kind of unique uh prisoner rescue, a raid um, about 15 miles behind enemy lines to rescue several thousand interned civilians yeah. that the Japanese had been holding since 1942. Did that have a particular a number, name, that, that uh, action? Do you recall? Yeah, that was the Los Banos raid. Yes, yep. Yeah, and so again, that's where we see the unique capabilities of the division. It was a combined ground assault. They also dropped in a company of paratroopers simultaneous with that who landed by the camp and together the ground recon elements with 
guerrilla fighters stormed the stormed the camp and ended up rescuing um, over 2,000 civilians. Then the entire the rescue force and the internees were all uh, evacuated uh, using amphibious vehicles that had, had come across from the lake. And it was one of those, you know, one of those dynamic raids. It lasted a couple of hours. You know, it was funny because one of the one of the civilians who was rescued was upset that she had not been rescued by the Marines. She told one of the soldiers, and you can imagine what a paratrooper's response to that. <laughs> would have been but you know it was funny because the marines had the had you know that was the same day that they wrote they raised the flag on iwo jima yeah and so the news of the raid was pushed to page three in favor of highlighting that iconic photo from iwo jima of the flag being raised that was the same day just to give everybody some context as to what was going on at the wider part of the of the of the war there but yeah so yeah, from I'm there glad they you, i'm glad you mentioned that that's right. So they were still Iwo Jima was, you know, going hot and heavy at the same time as the liberation of Luzon. And they they kept pushing across. And and it was here then that, that the 11th was finally able to um, take a pause from their campaign. They set up um, some training camps. They had the opportunity to start integrating some replacements. And of course, it was then that they started um, training for what they viewed was going to be the invasion of Japan. It was really another kind of unique situation, similar to what they had in New Guinea, where, you know, these replacements were arriving into the units and they really got some on the job training because there was still Japanese resistance and holdouts on the island, you know, small, you know, squad size, maybe a platoon at max. Um, you know, the 11th would send out patrols with these new replacements chasing down these, you know, these holdout units. And so they got, you know, the, the replacements got some exposure to what combat was going to be like. Um, and it gave them, you know, an opportunity to kind of transfer knowledge, if you will, from the veterans to these new guys in a, you know, a, a quote unquote combat environment as they were wrinkling out these, these resistance holdouts. I wanted to ask you, you did go, you went through a lot of diaries. What role did faith have in the ranks of the army? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, army psychologists, spent some time studying that as well, you know, wanting to understand how how soldiers processed fear, mm -hmm. how they managed it. And of course, you know, the number one solution to, to managing fear is action, right? And this is why every, soldiers around the world all hate artillery is, you, you know, you <laughs> feel helpless because there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, you just get pounded. Um, but, you know, but, yeah, you just can, you just have to sit there and take it. Um, but, you know, but faith did play a, a strong role in how uh, soldiers dealt with fear. You know, having a belief in, in a higher power, a belief in God, the ability to pray was definitely something that, you know, uh, a, numbers of soldiers relied on to get them through the tough spots. And it wasn't uncommon also for officers to lead their troops in, in prayer before an operation, uh, before a jump, things like that. And the 11th, had a had a famous chaplain by the name of Lee Walker who um, was always up front with the troops and there was kind of a within the within the 11th there was a a story that was often told at reunions and, and remembered as as uh, Walker's kind of sermon on the mount if you will and it took place when they were up in the mountains of Leyte 
They hadn't. This is this goes back to that stretch of time where they hadn't been resupplied in a number of days. They were all pretty hungry, and Walker uh, pulled a number of men aside to to provide some church services. And immediately upon conclusion of his sermon, a small gap in the clouds appeared. At the same time that one of those little, you know, puttering aircraft was circling overhead, and it dove down into that gap of the clouds and was able to push out some rations mm. um, to the guys below who who all kind of viewed that as a a miracle moment if you will as mm. the the clouds parted there after after the chaplain had finished speaking and praying what did you learn about the differences between the Japanese Shinto religion and the Western view of religion so I didn't I didn't do a, a deep dive into Shintoism. So there's probably I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna oversimplify this grossly. But you know what what I did learn because one of the things that I was curious about was the, was the Japanese tenacity and kind of what fueled their their unwillingness to surrender and their you know their tenacious way of never never giving up. And that you know Shintoism did play an, uh, an element of that. And the best way that I kind of could wrap my head around it was, is that, you know, the Japanese kind of had this warped sense of, of religion. Of course, the emperor was viewed as God. Um, plus, you know, you sprinkle in some of the, the honor that we're all familiar with to kind of fuel the, the, the sense of, you know, duty and a kamikaze, mm -hmm. you know, wrapped up again with some of the sense of, you know, samurai warrior ethic. And, that kind of, you know, put them in this, this this idea that, you know, right was on their side, honor was on their side, that they had uh, a manifest destiny to kind of free the Pacific, if you will, from oppressors, and that because of this divine right was on their side, and they were more honorable than their enemy, then, you know, many of the Japanese leaders felt that that was enough to overcome American firepower, right? And if they tried hard enough, and if they wanted it bad enough, that victory would be theirs. And of course, you know, uh, that's not really how it works. And that's where, you know, you, you, you see these Japanese bonsai attacks going in. And, you know, some, some, one, of the, one of the accounts I think I put in the book was, a, you know, one of the troopers remembered the Japanese, uh, a Japanese soldier charging him with a fountain pen up raised over his head like it was a dagger, yeah. you know, and that was, again, just, just speaks to the, you know, that guy had been led to believe that he was, he was going to win just through sheer willpower and um, didn't really work out that way. The Japanese referred to it as Yamato Damashi. I hope I'm, I'm saying that right, but it was, um, you know, the certainty of their righteous cause. Gotcha. And yeah. that yeah, they were led to believe they were invincible, and anybody who was their enemy was uh, their life would uh, was valued as that of a as a rabid dog, pretty much. Yeah, and the, you know, and those tactics worked well for them on the Chinese mainland, right? I mean, bonsai attacks there were very effective. You know, the lesser trained, um, you know, poorly armed adversaries they had on the Chinese Chinese mainland would all often break and run you know, under the wave of a, of a Japanese assault. Well, that wasn't really the case with, you know, with Australian, American or British troops who had the discipline, had the firepower to, to hold the line. So I think our next big action will be for the 11th to first set foot on the shores of Japan. Could you explain that, that taking place? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is where we see for the first time the division small size being an advantage. So, you know, of course, they've been trained in air mobile ops. Um, and so MacArthur tapped the 11th Airborne Division to be the first uh, troops air landed into Japan. They first flew from the airfields near Manila to the island of Okinawa. That's where um, they were waiting for the, the formal Japanese surrender. So I, I think it's one of the one of the misunderstandings that you often uh, encounter about the end of the war in the Pacific is is that we dropped the atomic bombs and then the war was over which isn't really how it unfolded. It took several weeks between the time that they dropped the bomb and the Japanese to then, you know, go through some internal dialogue themselves and, and then before brokering a peace treaty and then that formal process taking place. And during that interim, the 11th was flown to Okinawa. They spent a couple of weeks sitting on Okinawa waiting, and that, that was why the, you know, those, those, all those things were unfolding to formalize the surrender plan there. Um, a couple of days before the formal surrender ceremony, the 11th was airlifted from Okinawa into a small airfield outside of Tokyo. The 11th did go in fully armed. You know, none of the guys really expected that the Japanese would, would adhere to the surrender terms. They thought it was right. a trap. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's photos of them all loading up onto these planes to be flown in, you know, fully armed and loaded. Um, but fortunately, once they landed, there were there were no incidents. And one of the one of the troops uh, from the 11th later, quote, you know, I quote him in the book is saying that the Japanese surrendered as hard as they fought. Yeah. And so, you know, everybody breathed a big sigh of relief. They secured the airfield. Uh, that's, the, that's the same airfield that MacArthur landed in. Um, when he arrived for the, the the surrender ceremony, if you look at p- pictures from that event and you keep your eyes open, you'll see that there's a number of guys with helmets on that have 11 AB painted on the front of them. Those are the 11th Airborne guys that helped secure the airfield. Okay. And then uh, on September 2nd, um, MacArthur signed the formal declaration ending the war on the USS Missouri. General Swing was present along with you know dozens of other generals, admirals, and dignitaries that were there as well to kind of witness that momentous event. Okay, I've got a tough question for you, and I'd like to pose this question to authors. Assuming there's a production company that's still willing to produce a movie that shows the Japanese in a bad light, how would you open your story, Angels Against the Sun? What would be your first scene? Mm. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Well, as I think through that, you know, I opened the book with with the first battle on Leyte, um, which started to go very badly for the 11th before they were able to turn it around and kind of regain the initiative. I don't know. I think I think I would I would start it with the guy stealing the commander's horse and trying to escape off post as a way to kind of set the tone for, you know, these guys and kind of, you know, one of the things I tried to do in writing the book was really ground readers in the the humanity of these guys, right? Yes. I think it's, you know, we honor the, the greatest generation as, as well we should, but it, I think it's part of what makes them so great is that they were ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. And yes. so I think I think spending time reminding viewers or readers of, of, you know, that we're just talking about normal people here who would have rather been doing pretty much anything other than fighting the Japanese I think that would be a great opening. Just, these guys are just 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old guys 
with, with girlfriends and sometimes wives back home and from families back home who don't know where they are. And uh, they're right. just trying That's to right. get along day to day, not knowing what's ahead of them. Yeah, well, if you know any production companies that are interested, <laughs> you know, you've got my number. I will certainly let you know. <laughs> James M. Fenlon, author of Angels Against the Sun, a fantastic read, folks. And, uh, and it tells you a lot, and it really... It really opens up a lot of the fight that was going on in the Philippines that we don't often think of when we think about Europe and we think about the Marines and the Army going island to island toward Japan. We don't think of the Philippines that much. And this book is a real eye-opener that that battle was being fought worldwide. And it was brutal, every bit of it. A brutal battle for freedom. James, thank you so much for sharing your time today, and thank you so much for this book, which is out there on the bookshelves now. You want to tell us how people can get in touch with you and where your website is? Sure, and John, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. It's been great. Um, the book is available at, at all the usual suspects. You can order it online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and any of your uh, smaller independent bookstores should be able to order it for you as well. You can find me online at jamesfenelon.com or on any of the social channels. James, thanks so much for speaking with you. Thanks so much for taking time to speak with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, John.